I mentioned earlier, we're going to be concluding our look in this mini-series of messages called Life in the Body. We come this morning to the end of that series, that is this morning and this evening, because I just couldn't pack everything in for this morning, so we'll have seven total messages in this series called Life in the Body. And in this series, thus far, we've pondered church membership. We have discussed church ordinances with one complete message on baptism and then another message on the Lord's Supper. And then fourthly, we had a message on church discipline, church restoration. And then last Lord's Day, we discussed the matter of church leadership, elders and deacons, and what you could reasonably expect out of us as leaders. And I gave you uh, five areas, five key areas in which you could reasonably expect the church leaders, especially, of course, including myself, and what the requirements, the character, the duties, uh, even the accountability of a leader, what you could reasonably expect. And I mentioned to you that I wanted also to bring a message which will now be uh, kind of part one this morning and then part two tonight that will finish up uh, what you can see as a church member is your responsibility. This would be what a leader like myself and or others would reasonably expect of you. And because I gave five points on the leader last Sunday, I want to give ten points this morning for church members, and uh, or at least today, five of them this morning and then five more tonight. So if you have your pen ready, I do want you to write these down because I think these are going to be very, very important. You might not have seen this package in the way that I'm going to present it to you this morning and tonight, and so I want you to be clear in your minds what really it means to be a healthy church member. Uh, you remember that we gave all of you as members uh, a book by Fabidi Anyabwile, a uh, pastor in the Washington, D.C. area, What is a Healthy Church Member? And I do encourage you to read that. It was a gift from our church to you. And I want to encourage you to, to go through that carefully. It's a very, very small book. You could read it in, oh, an afternoon or less. Uh, it's a very, very good reading, but very, very brief reading, but well-written. And I want to encourage you as a stepping stone for your membership to read that book and also to heed and to hear the message of this morning and this evening. So, with that in mind, I want you to know what the leaders reasonably expect of you. And here's the first one. Number one, a healthy, zealous church member, a healthy, vibrant, dynamic church member, has certain principles, and the first one is this. He has the zealous desire, the zealous desire to know God and His Word through study and prayer. A healthy church member has this zealous desire to know God, to know God's Word through your own study and prayer. That's the first and I think key area that will occupy every successful, vibrant, um, dynamic church member because you are growing spiritually, not simply as a result of the preaching of the Word that you receive on Sundays, but through your own personal study of the Word of God and through prayer. And I want to give you a number of passages that you could write down. You could turn with me, of course, in your Bibles, but if I'm going to go too fast, you could at least write these down. And I want to show you, especially from the psalmist, his zeal in desire of knowing God and knowing God's Word. So if you would, please turn, if you can, to Psalm 42.1. That's, of course, a very famous first verse of the psalm. In fact, it was incorporated even in uh, a line in one of the songs that we sang this morning. And in Psalm 42.1, you probably know it very, very well. This is the passion of the psalmist. This is the passion of his heart. Psalm 42.1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. 
passion, the zealous desire of his heart. Verse 2, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? He has a zealousness, a great desire to know God. Even when his heart is cast down, even when he might be discouraged, even when he has tears, according to verse 3, even when it says in verse 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. That's a chief refrain of all of the psalmists, isn't it? Psalm 73, Psalm 73, verse 25. This is a verse that really should be a, a memory verse for all of us. Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? Implied, you, O God. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Now that's a passionate, zealous man who is all about pursuing the Lord in his heart. And of course, how do we do that? You likely have heard many, many Bible teachers and preachers say that we hear from God through what? Through his word. Through exclusively his word. Not in dreams, not in visions, not in ecstatic experiences, but centrally and exclusively and sufficiently through his word. And the psalmist is saying that. I desire you, O God. I desire you with all my heart. There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Psalm 84. Psalm 84. I read this as I was talking to some of our men the other night. And I read Psalm 84, at least the first portion of it and the last in our time together with these men. Psalm 84, verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. And he says in verse 11, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. He's passionate about the Lord. He wants to know the Lord. And you know the Lord through His Word. He even says in verse 10, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. You can tell. Even the psalmist having bad days, having struggles, even questions, uh, even at times uh, contempt uh, for the darkness that surrounds them and not knowing how to move themselves out of the darkness. And yet, time and time and time again, the psalmist returns to the idea that I want to know you, God, and I want your help. I want your deliverance. I want your word. I want your wisdom. And the Lord gives it. You, of course, know Psalm 119. In almost every single verse, save just a couple, it is a psalm that exalts the Word of God. It's in the Hebrew text, each of the stanzas of that psalm and all of the alphabetical arrangement uh, of the Hebrew alphabet, every one of these stanzas cries out, does the psalmist. And we don't know exactly who it is. It's an anonymous psalm. But the psalmist cries out for God and he cries out for God to know God's Word, to know God's wisdom. And I asked the question this morning, is that your heart? Is that where you're coming from spiritually? Is that what you desire? Do you desire nothing on earth besides the Lord and His Word? That's the only way to know the Lord. There is no other way to know the Lord except through His Word. And there really is no other way to express that gratitude, that knowledge, that wisdom, that understanding, but through our prayers back to the Lord, right? It's that reciprocal relationship where He talks to us through His Word, and we express ourselves to Him back through our prayers to the living God. And this is the zealous desire of every pastor's heart to know that His people are conversing with God in prayer, that they're, they're struggling with God in prayer, 
That they are agonizing in their prayers to God for themselves, for their families, for their church, for their community, for their city, their state, for their country, for their world. This is, this is the zealous desire to know God and to know His Word through study and through prayer. I want to see how prayer is impactful to the early church. Look in your Bibles at Acts chapter 1. We read chapter 2 a moment ago and the preface, as it were, to the study in the book of Acts in chapter 1 was the early church's commitment, even uh, prior to that, even prior to Pentecost in chapter 2, in chapter 1, verse 14. Listen to what it says from that small band of Jesus' followers, Acts 1.14. All these, and of course that was the disciples, uh, the apostles, and uh, Jesus' family, and a few others, all these, verse 14, with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Notice, they were with one accord, they had great unity, and they were devoting themselves to prayer. Look at chapter 2, verse 42. That's where I left off in the reading this morning. About 3,000 souls were saved at Pentecost, as we read. And in verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's the Word of God, and fellowship, their relationship to each other, to the breaking of bread, their fellowship meals and the Lord's Supper, and the prayers. Plural, and the prayers. Their regular times praying together. And of course individually, but these contexts suggest to us that they were praying corporately. That's why we spend a good season of prayer, or what we call the pastoral prayer, in the middle of our worship service. Because we gather together, and it's as though I bring you before the Father as a, an instrument, and I raise us up collectively as we pray together, as your hearts are communing with mine, as we pray together as a congregation, and we lift our collective prayers up to the Father. We read Scripture, we talk to the Lord, uh, we give Him our hearts, we intercede for each other, we pray for missions, we pray for missionaries, we pray for those who are hurting, we pray for the gospel and its effectiveness, and when we do that collectively, we're really doing what the early church says they were doing here. They were devoting themselves to prayer. Look at Colossians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul never tired as strong a man as he was in the sovereignty sphere of trusting God. He never tired, nevertheless, of asking for the prayers of those around him. In chapter 4 of Colossians, verse 2, Continue steadfastly in prayer, Paul says, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us. God may open to us a door for the Word, an opportunity for the preaching of the Gospel to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. And then verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, he greets you always struggling, notice that word, agonizing, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. And what's he struggling with as he prays? that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. What encouragement is it when you know that someone on your behalf is struggling in prayer? What encouragement? That someone thinks enough of his God to pray directly to God and thinks enough of you to pray for you. What, what an encouragement. What a joy to know that as a church you have saints praying with you and for you, yea, even struggling in prayer on your behalf. It means everything. It, it grants you the knowledge, the understanding, the encouragement, the bulwark of knowing that their prayers are intercessorily being prayed on your behalf for your good, for your spiritual maturity, for your steadfastness. 
and I would even add, for the struggle that we have against the arch enemy of our souls, Satan himself. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to get there one of these years. And in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18 says, Praying, after Paul displays, lays out all of the elements of the armor of God against the evil one, Satan himself, then he adds in verse 18, Praying, how often? At all times, in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. There he is again, asking for their effective prayers for the sake of the proclamation of the gospel. So he says, so that my mouth is able to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This first and most important point is that you and I are zealously desiring to know God, to know His Word, and we know God through study, and we know God through prayer. In that little book by Thabiti Anyabwile, what is a healthy church member, he summarizes it very nicely for us. This is what he says. Knowing God starts with knowing about Him, about His character. Knowing God means following Jesus as a disciple. Such knowledge of God comes only from drinking deeply from the message of the Bible with all its rich themes. Did you catch that? Drinking deeply. That's Psalm 42.1. As the deer pants for the water brooks, for the flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. You're drinking deeply of all of the themes of God and His Word and of this world and creation and sin and redemption and the life everlasting. You and I are drinking deeply of that when we drink deeply of the Word of God. He goes on to say, And such knowledge of God belongs especially to those Christian church members who commit to becoming biblical theologians. Oh, not in some professional sense, uh, not in some sense as though there's, a, there's an exam, but in the sense that you and I are growing ever deeper and ever more encouragingly of our knowledge of God uh, the knowledge of His ways, how He operates, thinking His thoughts after Him. And then when we are drinking deeply of that knowledge, then it can't but help in our souls ejaculate prayers of thanksgiving and gratitude and hope and all of the things that buoy our spirit and give us a sense that God is on our side. Habibi goes on to say about prayer, can there be a more marvelous privilege than that which has been afforded to Christians through Christ to stand before God our Father and respond in prayer by His Spirit to His Word spoken to us. No, there's no greater privilege. No greater privilege. Our Heavenly Father, through Christ, by the Spirit, allows us to enter His very presence. If you have you thought about the momentous opportunity that is when we go before God in prayer? And when we ask God to do things in our lives and in the lives of others around us. It was Spurgeon who said, Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the hand of our neck. That's what the Word and prayer does for our souls. Do you have a zealous desire to know God and His Word? through study and prayer. That's what leaders can reasonably expect of church members. Number two. Number two. We can also, as leaders, expect the zealous desire in you to proclaim the gospel to others. A zealous desire to proclaim the gospel to others. Now, it's not just the idea of reading God's Word to know Him better. It's not just the idea of praying to God out of the, the fountainhead of all of that knowledge about God and His Word. It's, it's not that in a vacuum. It's not that in and of itself. It's not just for the sake of getting fat heads. It's not just for the sake of saying, I know a lot of things about the Bible. 
It's for a purpose. And the purpose is that very thing which God has left us here to do, and that is to evangelize others, to share with others the gospel message. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and you'll see exactly what I'm referring to. Paul uses a very, very important phrase here when he speaks of this gospel word. He says in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. That's the good news. That's the good news of Jesus. I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then here is this gospel, verse 3, For I delivered to you, and then this momentous phrase, as of what? First importance. Chief importance. The most important thing of your life. The most important thing about you. The very reason that God has left you on this earth. You ever thought about that? The moment that you and I were converted, the moment that we were saved, whenever that was, although you and I might have desired to go to heaven immediately and be with God forever, what a joy that would have been, but God has decided to leave us here for the sake, primarily and chiefly to worship Him, and through that worshiping of Him, He's given us the opportunity to open our mouths and communicate the gospel. That's why we're here. That's why we stay. And it's through, in part, the gospel that we are sanctified when we see God working in our lives and when we see this glorious message for which we then can communicate to others. So he says there, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. And then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. This is, this is nailing down. This is, this is absolutely bolting down in concrete that the gospel is something of historical value. Not just spiritual value. It happened in history. It was a fact. It really occurred. And there were witnesses that Paul says who were right there. Over 500 of them, including myself, including Cephas, Peter. And that gospel is that Christ died for our sins and that he was buried. And on the third day, in accordance with the Scripture, he arose. And in a sense, that very brief, to-the-point message, Christ died, he was buried, he rose again from the dead, is what you and I are to proclaim to others. We don't have to get into some major theological spat battle, dialogue with someone. We don't have to do that. If it lends itself at some point where we have to explicate the understanding of the gospel in a much greater way, then we might have to do that. But pure and simple to the point, here is the historical fact. Jesus Christ died. He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day. And he appeared to many, many witnesses to confirm the fact that they who knew him before and they who knew him after his resurrection, truly this is the Son of God. Even that centurion said it right there at the cross. Truly this is the Son of God. And you and I have the privilege of proclaiming that truth. There's a zealous desire on, on the part of those healthy church members to do this very thing. That's why the church exists. That's why we're here. That's what we're all about. That's what we're doing. Remember the woman at the well in John 4? Jesus witnessed to her. He proclaimed himself to her. And what did she do? She ran back to the town. And she told all the men of the town, he, he, he told me everything about myself. And she witnessed to them. And then they came out to meet Jesus. And they began to ask him questions. And then they began witnessing to others, we have found the Messiah. That's the way it goes, folks. That's the way it is. That's the way it's supposed to be. And you know, it's... It's not just the wonderful message that Jesus died, was buried, and raised again on the third day, and that you and I must repent of our sins. We must place our confidence and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for eternal salvation. It's not just that. There is actually a warning in Scripture. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. There's a warning that we must also give as a summons for people to believe. 
chapter 1, verse 6. Since indeed, Paul tells the Thessalonians, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, and here it is, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. This is a summons to obey, isn't it? It's a command to obey. It's not just our saying to people, hey, do you want to try Jesus? And if you don't, that would be sad for me. I believe it would be sad ultimately for you. Tell them why. Because the Bible says that if you do not know God and if you do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, verse 9, they, those who reject, who disobey, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might or power. Now that's not often what we hear. We'll hear all of the goodies that people can receive, all of the benefits of the gospel. But this also says there is a penalty to pay if you don't, if you don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And that should motivate us. Motivated Paul, motivated Peter, motivated the other disciples, motivated those from the first century to our own day who are zealously desiring to proclaim the gospel to others. And you know, if you combined our first two points, the idea of knowing God through His Word, through study and prayer, and this idea of proclaiming the gospel, you could say that our prayers and through our study of the Scripture in order to be excellent communicators about the gospel, including anticipating objections to the gospel and being able to answer those objections to the gospel, all of those things could bring us to the place where we could say at the top of our prayer list, at the top of our study of the Scripture, is to know God so that we could proclaim that God to others and to pray like Paul said when he asked others to pray for him, that in your prayers, as you struggle for me, pray for me, that our opportunity to communicate that gospel would be effective. Now those are worthy prayers, my friend. Those are worthy prayers. Hey, pray for me as I go out this week. I'm going to be communicating the gospel to so-and-so. I've got a neighbor. I've got a friend. I've got a co-worker. I really need your prayers as I communicate the gospel to this person. I've been so encouraged with Bob Primus laying in those hospital beds and uh, every waking moment as I visit him, I don't know, probably five or six times, and I've said, Bob, how are you doing? He says, look, I need some of those brochures you've been giving me. I've been giving them out to all the nurses. I've been telling them, you've got to come to this church. You've got to hear this guy preach. You've got to know the gospel. You've got to know the good news. Here it is. Let me lay it out for you. And anybody who who comes by his bedside, it's as though he's chaining them to that very bed and saying, I want you to respond. Time is running out. There's urgency here. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 15. I love this. This is an opportunity for our instruction, as Paul says in Romans 15, these incredible words about his ministry. And he uses, again, this this concept of struggling or agonizing. Look at chapter 15. He says in verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers. Now, this is the end of the letter to the Romans. And so he's making this, as it were, final appeal. And he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. That's a great audience, right? I appeal. What he's saying by that is, I want you to know that here's my appeal. And when I give you this appeal, I want you to know who's listening. I want you to know who's watching. I appeal by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together. That's that word, agonizomai. Agony. Striving together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. I want to give a gift of money to the poor church in Jerusalem. I need to be delivered from the unbelieving Judaizers, those in Judea. I need to be delivered from them, and I need your prayers as you struggle, as you agonize, as you strive with me so that I could proclaim the gospel to others. Now, that's a healthy church member who strives to do something like that, praying for themselves, praying for others, 
praying that the gospel be effective, praying that God will be known through his word and our prayers together on their behalf. 2 Thessalonians 3.1 says, Pray for us, brothers, that the word of the Lord would be sounded forth. That's where we get that English word echo. That the word of the Lord would be echoing evermore in the hearing of the people. 1 Timothy 2.1-4 Prayers, supplications, thanksgiving be offered on behalf of the king and all of those in authority. Praying that the gospel would be effective. Jesus said in Matthew 9, 36-38, pray that the Lord would send out workers into the harvest because the harvest is ripe. That's the way, that's the way we ought to be praying. That's, that's what should occupy us. Anya Buile says, as church members, our aim is to understand the gospel so deeply, so intimately, that it animates every area of our lives. We want the gospel central to our communication with others, central to how we encourage and correct, central to career and relationship decisions, central to the decisions the church makes corporately, and central to all our habits of life. We want the gospel, the God of the gospel, to take priority in every area of life. It's all about the gospel. It's all about the gospel. That's why he says in 1 Corinthians 15, This is of first importance. The B.D. Anyawile goes on to say, if we would contribute to the health of our local congregations, we must be committed not only to harvesting the gospel for ourselves, but to shipping it to others as well. We must do the work of an evangelist. With urgency and love, we must tell the non-Christians among us to repent of their sins and to believe on Jesus Christ. We must tell them that turning to God does not result in an easy life, but the decision is well worth it. The forgiveness and satisfaction their souls long for is found only in the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, how true. Amen and amen. Yes, the zealous desire to know God and His Word through study and prayer, the zealous desire to proclaim the gospel to others, and thirdly, the zealous desire to minister to the needs of the body. This is what we should reasonably expect from healthy church members. Their zealous desire to minister to the needs of the body. I told you this before when we had a little core group forming that was to be the seed form of Thousand Oaks Bible Church. There are four passages in our New Testaments that give us a sense of our opportunity for ministry among the body, at least in terms of spiritual gifts, spiritual uh, opportunities, spiritual visits, spiritual health, meeting spiritual needs. And it's very easy to remember because there are two twelves and two fours. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. Turn to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12. This is what the Bible says is your realistic opportunity to meet the needs of of the body, to minister to them. Chapter 12, verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And what is what Paul is strictly saying is, we all have different aptitudes, different gifts, different abilities, and there are also varieties of gifts, varieties of service, varieties of activities, but it's the same Trinitarian God, the Spirit, the Lord, speaking of Jesus, and God the Father who empowers them all in everyone. And for what purpose? What shall we achieve? Verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Common good. Symphony. That's the word out of which we receive symphony. It's for the symphony of the church. It's everybody playing their instrument. It's everybody doing that which contributes to the common good of the body. Romans 12 says the same thing. Romans chapter 12. The zealous desire should be in your heart to do everything you can to minister to the needs of the body. Romans 12 verse 4 says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. 
So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And then he details a a representative list. Verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. God is the one who dispenses these gifts to us. Let us use them, he says, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. These are opportunities for ministry to the body. You say, well, I, I don't know what my aptitudes are. I, I, don't, I don't know what my gifts are. I don't know what my abilities are. You know, in one sense, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter in this sense. Find a need and meet it. That's it. That's all. Just find a need and meet it. Anybody can pitch in and help. And then, as the Lord shapes and molds the situation and the church and the opportunities, your gifts will come to the fore, and your leaders will help you with that, and others in the body will help you determine where you can best serve. Ephesians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. Ephesians 4 says this in verse 12, that God gives pastors and teachers to the body to equip the saints, Ephesians 4, 12, for the work of ministry. You see, the pastor's not the guy who's simply and only doing the work of ministry. He's actually equipping the body so that they can do the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ, Paul says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. God gives gifts and he gives an office, the office of pastor-teacher, so that he then and they as leaders, elders and deacons, ultimately can, can move the body along in spiritual maturity because they're teaching, they're ministering, they're serving so that you can mature, so that you can in turn be ministering to each other, so that the whole body is built up in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. First Peter chapter 4. And this is probably the one place that gives it in its most succinct categorization. In chapter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, like the preacher, teachers, as one who speaks oracles of God, we only speak the word of God, and whoever serves, that's everybody else, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So now you know. In Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, gives a sense of of the direction of the body so that you and I can have this earnest desire to meet the needs of the body. Whatever our gifts are, whatever our abilities are, God will determine that. He gives them to us. He moves in His providence to make us a a fragrant aroma to those around us. We're ministering to people. We just see whatever needs that need to be met and we want to do everything we can to meet those needs because that's our earnest desire. That's, That's our zealousness. That's what we ought to expect from each other. Should I say anything about the one another? I mean, that's the way you measure effectiveness in the body. How many of the one another's are being exercised and met within the body? I've said before many, many times, there are many one another's. Without difference, it's over 45 of them in the New Testament. Either telling us who we are with one another, uh, the, the very ontology, the, that which makes up who we are, the organic nature of who we are, we are members of one another, and then the duties we have toward each other what we are to do with and for and to each other. Number four, not just a zealous desire to know God and His Word through study and prayer, a desire to proclaim the gospel to others and to minister to the needs of the body, but also the zealous desire to financially contribute to the work of the Lord. The zealous desire to financially contribute to the work of the Lord. This is a realistic expectation. It is an expectation of the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the Bible clearly tells us that Paul himself says, I should be making my living by the gospel and I should be having support because I'm called to make my living by the gospel. He says in verse 3 of chapter 9, this is my defense to those who would examine me, examine me, 
do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take alongside a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his, at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? And he quotes some of the Old Testament passages about the worker being worthy of his wages, about the, the plowman who, who brings the animal in and does that work, and then the, the farmer shares in the crop. It says, verse 11, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we would reap material things from you? If others share in this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? And then he begs off a little bit as though someone might think, Oh, Paul, you're probably just in this for the money. Is that, is that what you're saying? And he says, look, I have the right to expect this, but I'm not going to take that because I don't want you to think ill of me, but I could if I needed. And then he says this in chapter 16, verse 1. He says, here's what I want you to do, and here's why we take an offering. Every uh, worship service that we have, chapter 16, verse 1. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. That means this is where and who I direct every time, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. What he's really saying is, when you get together, take an offering. And of course, the particular offering that he's talking about here is for the four saints. Take from those who have to give to those who have not. But he sets a precedent here that each week you ought to give, you ought to set aside. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This, this will help you determine the level of your own generosity in the financial sphere. Chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, and notice this, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Isn't that amazing? poor themselves in the midst of a poverty-stricken area. They don't really, in one sense, have the means, but even beyond their means, doing everything they can, they're begging for the opportunity earnestly for participating in financial giving for the relief of the saints. This is amazing. He says, They gave of themselves, verse 5, first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Chapter 9, verse 6. Here's Paul's summarizing point. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he is made up in his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And someone might say, well, how am I going to meet my own needs? Verse 8, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Verse 10, He who supplies need to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Think, if you give, God will press it down, shake it up, it will be overflowing, and you'll be able to give out of that which you receive very generously, God loves a cheerful giver, and He will supply everything you need and more. Philippians 4. Philippians chapter 4. You know, Paul was constantly looking out for the poor around him. He says in Acts 20, I take Jesus' principle to heart. I coveted no man's gold or silver or apparel. And I took the Jesus principle that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so I'm always looking for an opportunity to take care of the relief of the saints. And he says in Philippians 4.10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I'm speaking, 
of being in, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I'm to be content. I just waited, just waited until the time was right, waited until the time in God's providence that you would come to the, the aid of those, including myself, if I had that need. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in, every, in, in, in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, and I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And then he says in verse 14, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. So kind of you. I, and I can echo that. Thank you so much for caring for me and my family. Thank you so much for your precious, generous giving. This is, this is what wells up in the preacher's heart when he knows the sacrifice on the part of others for the sake of the gospel. This is, this is a wonderful thing. All of us, including our own family, we ought to have the zealous desire for the meeting of the needs of the body, and we ought to have a zealous desire for contributing financially to the work of the Lord. Number five, and finally for this morning, we ought to have also in reasonable expectation the zealous desire to honor and submit to spiritual leaders. We should have in our minds this zealous desire to honor and submit to spiritual leaders. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, in verse 13, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, I know that has to be earned. I know that has to be earned over time. And I know a man has to prove himself faithful. I know that a church leadership team has to prove themselves over time. But when they do, it says here, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Remember I shared last time Hebrews 13.7? You can go there. Hebrews 13.7 says, Remember those who led you. Remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Why is this to be done? Because of verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls. As you're watching their conduct, their lives... They're watching yours. They're keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. They'll have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. 1 Timothy 5.17 says that a, a preacher, someone who's working hard at preaching and teaching, is worthy of double honor. Both, both respect in that sense, but also that word teme, double pay. He's to be accorded uh, the kind of uh, financial remuneration that speaks of his office, that speaks of his prowess, that speaks of his skill, that speaks of his ability, that speaks of his character. And when you do that, you are honoring and submitting to those you love. Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. Philippians 4, 9. I wonder how it is that a man like Paul could say what he does, but... He was so zealous, he was so godly, and he's able under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to say in Philippians 4.9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. What a standard. What a, what a holy standard. What a bar to set for you to be able to say, about your leaders. I'm going to follow this guy. I'm going to follow this man of God and what he has taught me and what I've received from him and what I've heard from him and what I've seen in him, I want to practice those things. Now, I know that's a high bar. But if you're zealously desiring to see the kind of leaders who could model that, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ then it's a reasonable expectation that the leader ought to have from you the idea of honor and respect and submission because you see that as your responsibility just as it is the responsibility of the leader 
to be impeccable and above reproach on your behalf. 1 Peter 5, first part of verse 5, be subject to your elders. Be subject to your elders. And I don't know if you have run across this particular verse before, a little bit tucked away, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14, Paul says that on the day of our Lord Jesus, that is when the when the Lord comes back, on that day, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Wow. Here's, here's, this, here's this reciprocal relationship between myself and you. I'm, on that day, going to be boasting about you to the Father. And on that day, you're going to be boasting about me to the Father. Because we have this love relationship. Because we have this shepherd-sheep relationship because we have this responsibility, this opportunity, this bond of love. And we share it so deeply that on the day of the Lord Jesus, we'll be boasting about each other. We'll be saying, oh, I had a loving, godly, faithful pastor. And that pastor will say, oh, I had a loving, godly, choice sheep to shepherd. And it was a marvelous thing. I couldn't have asked for any better group of people. Now, I know that we all preach a better message than we live, right? I know that. And yet I know that these are the principles and the passages in the Word of God that say in these five ways what we can reasonably expect from each other. And because I'm a sheep too, you can reasonably expect these things from me as well. Now tonight, 6.30, we're going to see five more that are reasonably expected of all of us, and as we do, we're going to see God work in this church for His glory and for our good. Amen? All right, let's pray together. Father, thank You. Thank You for giving us such a brief time and so many passages, and yet I pray, Lord, that just the weight of these passages, just the the sheer number of them, would bring all of us to the place of understanding the heavy yet joyous responsibility of the expectations that are ours as sheep in your sheepfold. Father, thank you for the earnest desire in these ways. And I pray that everyone, including myself, would begin to live these things as Thousand Oaks Bible Church for your glory and for our good and that others could see this zealous desire on our parts to live out these five things and the things we'll see tonight. Oh, Father, bring it to pass and allow us to enjoy the Holy Spirit's power in bringing these things to fruition. May it be so. For the sake of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.